So where we are in the great scheme of things is we are still talking about Yeshua's perspective on prayer. And last time we finished the friend at midnight and the bad father, good father, where the good father is God. Now, one of the things to keep in mind is what this is, is Yeshua talking about the character of God. And what he's doing is talking about the character of God in human terms. So he contrasts, in the case of the friend at midnight, who goes and tries to get something to entertain a guest. Nobody in the audience can imagine that one of his human friends would behave that way. So what would make you think that God, who is far more virtuous than any human, would behave in such a way. Similarly, with the Father's gifts, where you have a scorpion and an egg and a snake and a fish and all that, as I said last time, the similarity in those pairs is due to shape. So a scorpion, when it's got its tail up over it, looks egg-like. A snake and a fish are both reptilian, so forth. Bread and a stone are both lumps, so they're similar in shape. And so the idea there is you have a child who trusts his father, and no father would fool his kid when he asks for bread by giving him a bread-shaped stone. No father would fool his kid when he asks for fish, giving him a slimy, snaky snake. So the metaphor there has to do with a father tricking a naive child with something that looks superficially like what he asked for. That's why that series of examples is in there. And as Yeshua said, you can't imagine a natural father doing something like that to his child. How much more then will God give those who ask the Holy Spirit? So that's where we left off. The corresponding vignette in the chiasm will be in Luke 18. That will be the unjust judge and the Pharisee and the tax collector. So what we have here is a chiasm within a chiasm. The chiasm then is Luke 11, which starts off with the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer talks about the proper content of prayer. And we spent an entire session talking about that. And then the next thing you have inside your chiasm here is the assurance of prayer. The idea that you can go confidently to God and speak to him with the full assurance that he will listen to your prayer in the same way that a friendly human would listen to it or a father would listen to a child. What we're going to do now on the flip side of that with the unjust judge is we're going to talk about the assurance of prayer again where you have a widow that comes before an unjust judge and how she goes about getting justice. And then paired with the right content of prayer, we have the right attitude in prayer, which is the Pharisee and the tax collector. So what I say, you've got a chiasm within a chiasm here. By the way, one of the books that I read suggests very strongly that these 
four parables were told at the same time in the same place. In other words, it was all one discourse and the breaking up into chiasm across a number of chapters in Luke is an author's artifact and wasn't necessarily the order in which they were given. Could be, but it, as I say, says not. So I'm now in chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. Now, a couple of things here. Notice that the widow is not being judged. She is the plaintiff. She is not the defendant in legal terms. A lot of Christian commentaries talk about the widow getting justice as if she were the one who were in the dock, so to speak. And she's not. She's a plaintiff. The other thing is the setup here, of course, is that you have a judge who is fundamentally corrupt. One of the things that Torah says is that a judge is a partner with God in establishing justice in the world. One of the functions of the priests, Levites and priests, are to be judges. They were in Israel. But the point is, a judge is not a freelancer, if you will. He's expected to interpret Torah, interpret the law, and he is supposed to give justice in the same way that God would, within human limitations, obviously, were God the one who is doing judging. As I say, this judge is corrupt. He has clearly gotten his position based on local politics. And he is keeping his position by respecting the well-connected. And the problem here with this widow is she has nobody to defend her. Again, you all remember from studying Torah over years and years and years that the widow, the orphan, and the stranger are sort of God's poster children for people who you may not abuse. And the reason for that is a widow, a stranger, or an orphan doesn't have an extended family or a clan to take up his cause. He's alone. In fact, there's a term in Israel today and the phrase there, a lone soldier, is one who has made Aliyah, doesn't have a family that lives in the land, and doesn't have anybody to support him or invite him to feasts or any of that kind of stuff. So the IDF itself makes a real effort to take care of those people and pay attention to them that they don't get lost in the cracks. So in God's economy in the Torah, widows, orphans, and strangers fall into that same category. They don't have natural affiliations within the land, so it's very easy to cheat them and abuse them and oppress them because they can't call up the local tribe and have the local tribe come and give you a hard time. So anyway, 
the setup here then is you have a judge who basically doesn't care and you have a widow who is helpless and that widow has somehow been wronged by somebody else and that widow then wants the judge to give her justice and the judge doesn't see anything in it for him because there's nothing that this widow can ever do for him there's nobody who's going to feel grateful to him if he does anything no payola no graft nothing so there isn't any reason for this judge to want to take up her case that's your setup so verse 3 again and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying give me justice against my adversary for a while he refused but afterward he said to himself though i neither fear god nor respect man Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In other words, she is nagging. And again, you need to understand the culture. The judge is way more powerful and influential than this widow. If he were to come down on her like a stack of bricks, everybody would look at him like, well, you jerk and you bully. In that culture, a man in that position cannot exercise the full power that he actually has access to against someone who is so obviously weak and beneath him. He would never get invited to another cocktail party. So he just can't do it. What she's doing is she knows that he can't do it. So every time the court is open, she comes into the court and she's right there. And when he comes in, she stands up and yells, give me justice. So she's harassing him, but he can't use the court bailiffs and everybody to throw her out on her backside because that would be just culturally a non-starter. He finally says, She's not giving up. So I will go ahead and judge her case just to get her out of my face. That's literally what's going on there. Verse 6. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, again, there's a couple of things going here. First off, obviously, contrasting the character of God with the character of the judge. The judge didn't do it until he finally just got tired of her and did it. That's not the case with God. The second thing is, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, that's an interesting thing. It just sort of looks like it's plumped there on the end, but it's not. It's fundamental to the vignette. Now, there's two things at play here. In another part of the Gospels, what Yeshua says is, 
don't be like the pagans who do vain repetition, thinking that they're going to be heard by their much repetition. The first thing that you have is Yeshua saying, just doing it over and over and over again, like the pagans do, isn't effective. But then what you have here with the widow is she does it over and over and over again, and it is effective. You see the contrast. The difference here is that the widow has faith that if she keeps after it is going to get her prayer answered. If you look in the Jewish literature and you look in the Torah, one of the things that God does is when people get in his face, he appears to change his mind. And you have to contrast that with Yeshua who says in Matthew 6 and verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray like this. And then we have the Lord's Prayer, which we did a couple of times ago. So you have the contrast of Yeshua saying, don't heap up empty phrases with the widow who comes over and over and over again. You see the contrast. And in the Jewish literature, there's a guy named Honi, C-H-O-N-I. He's a rabbi. And he's called Honi the Circle Drawer. And what Honi did when there was a drought is he drew a circle in the ground and he says, God, I am not leaving this circle until you give us rain. And it rained. And the rabbi that was in charge of the group he was in says, you know, if it hadn't been you, Honey, I would excommunicate you for behaving that way. And the point of the story was, Honey, in everything he does, is righteous and lives a life of service to God. So, in a sense, like Moses, when he stands in God's face and says, God, I'm not going anywhere until you pardon this people, and Honey says, God, I'm not stepping out of this circle till you give us rain. So, in the Jewish literature of the time of Yeshua, this kind of attitude toward God was applauded. And furthermore, God recognized it and answers those prayers. Yeshua himself says that he did not come to start a new religion. What he did was he came in fulfillment of the prophecies. He came to call Israel back to obedience but he came as an observant Jew and his problems with the ruling temple establishment were that their hearts were in the wrong place. They were doing the minutia of religion, but they were not taking care of the fatherless, the widow, and the stranger. They were corrupt and everything else, but they were punctilious. They were tithing, knit, and cumin, but they were neglecting the weightier 
things of the Torah, and that's why he was grumpy with them. He wasn't grumpy with the observing the Torah part. He was grumpy with the rest of their behavior. Like Jacob, when he's wrestling with the angel, not giving up and not turning loose until he gets a blessing. The people who get the ink in the Torah and the Bible argue with God. Abraham, for example, when we're arguing about Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham knows God's character. God's character is just. God is not capricious like a pagan god. So what Abraham does is stand up to God and say, wait a minute, you're the judge of the whole world. Are you going to take these people out if there are 50 righteous men down there? Far be it from you to do something like that. No, okay, we'll go down to 40. We wind up down at 10, and apparently, it doesn't say this, both Abraham and God agrees that if it's less than 10, there's no hope for the place. And the idea here, this widow knows that she is entitled to justice. She is entitled to it. The society says she's entitled to it. The Torah says she's entitled to it. Now, she isn't necessarily entitled to a verdict in her favor, but she is entitled to be heard. And so what she's doing is she is insisting on something that she is entitled to. The same thing with people who, for lack of a better term, get in God's face. Moses said, "Uh, God, no. If you wipe them out, all the pagans are going to say, you weren't able to do what you said you were going to do. It's not some soft, wishy-washy argument. It is, God, your character is such that you said you were going to do this. So do it. So the widow here, she's not doing vain repetition where she's heaping up empty words. She is coming at the judge and saying, do your job. Your job is to administer justice. I need justice. Do it. You're obligated. And she keeps going at that until he finally says, I can't get rid of this woman, so I'll just go ahead and give her justice and... That'll be the end of it. And it's the same with God. Your character, God, is that you don't wipe out the innocent. So you can't. Your character, God, is that you value your reputation in this world. So if you wipe out Israel, your reputation is going to suffer. You you can't do that. That's not vain repetition. That's chutzpah. There's a difference. What we see here is chutzpah on the part of the widow and on the part of the friend at midnight. The friend at midnight also knows that the culture and everything else is that the village is obligated to do what is necessary to entertain a visiting stranger. We need three loaves of bread to do this. So I need three loaves of bread. And if his friend is a jerk and doesn't give it to him, he's going to be righteously indignant, not only for himself, but for the whole village. You see the difference between that and vain repetition. That's the point I want to get across. What 
Yeshua says is God is not like that. God is just. He is not an unjust judge. He is not somebody who doesn't care. And Paul says the same thing when he says pray boldly. That's what we're talking about is chutzpah. You need to stand up and say what you want and you need to stand on scripture and say this is what I want and you said that I can have it. I want it. So that's the unjust judge in, in our little chiasm behind us, the unjust judge and the friend at midnight talk about the assurance of prayer, God's character. Verse 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And what I'm talking about when I say chutzpah is faith. This widow has faith because she knows what she's entitled to. And the basis of faith is knowing what you're entitled to, what God's promises are, and acting as if he is going to fulfill those promises. That's what faith is. What I'm saying is, will he find faith? Are the people that are going to be here when he returns, could be us, could be somebody in the future, are those people going to have the same degree of faith as this widow had, or as the friend at midnight had, where they are sure of what the promises are and they act as if those promises are true and as if those promises will be delivered on. In other words, will we find people like that when it comes back? That's how I read it. Comment was that he was thinking about end times and tribulation and so forth. A couple of things about that. I didn't spend much time on it, but one of the commentaries that I read say that a lot of Christian preachers read into these two parables on prayer in time stuff. I don't see it, and the author that I was reading didn't see it. And part of the reason for that is they're sort of of the opinion that Yeshua started a new religion, and I don't think he did at all. I think that it's the same religion. So I'm not a rapture guy. But my point is, with so much of at least the American church putting a whole lot of faith eggs in the basket of we're going to be out of here, as I am so fond of saying, if they're right, they can explain it to me on the way up. But if they're wrong, as I think they are, you're going to have a whole lot of people whose faith is going to be severely stressed. I don't know what to do about that other than just make that observation. But as I say, I don't particularly see the set of parables as referring to end time stuff. In fact, one of the things that you'll see here on this original slide that I had up, what we're going to go into next is signs of the kingdom both present and future. So 
what, what we'll have back in, in Luke 11 are signs of the present kingdom. In other words, signs that he does while he's here and then signs of the kingdom to come. So that's sort of the next chunk in the chiasm and we're certainly going to go there. But what I see verse 8 as talking about is when he comes back, are there going to be people with the same assurance and chutzpah as the friend at midnight and as the widow? Because both of those examples are, this is what I am supposed to get. I'm going to keep after it until I get it. That to me is tenacious faith. I see verse 8 as referring to that. Verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Notice the setup. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And again, in Jewish Second Temple society, those are polar opposite people on the social scale and on the righteousness scale. Pharisees are super righteous. Tax collectors are shunned because they work for the Romans. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the parable, I think, is pretty obvious. And notice who he's telling it to. He's telling it to the Pharisee. Now, it isn't necessarily the case that the people we were telling him to are actual Pharisees, but it is the case that they think that they are pretty hot stuff and they look down on other people. The attitude of the Pharisee is on the verge of, God, you're really fortunate that I have chosen you as a God. I mean, look at what I have brought to the table here. I am doing you a really big favor by worshiping you. So that's sort of the attitude of the Pharisee. The thing that I don't know about the tax collector, and this is important to me, it isn't in the parable, but it's important, I think. Is the tax collector in his job a sinner? You know, not just garden variety human sin, but is his job itself sinful? Is he extorting people? Is he doing all sorts of underhanded stuff as part of his job? Because if the answer is yes, then his repentance, unless he decides to quit and go into another line of work, is not genuine repentance. 
In other words, if his job is just, okay, I'm collecting taxes. I don't take anything more than I'm supposed to take. I'm not extorting anybody. Somebody's got to collect the taxes. I'm doing it. That's one thing. The point is, if he is taking advantage of his position to oppress people, to extort, etc., then he is sinning as part of his job. And unless he intends to A, quit doing that, or B, quit his job, then his repentance here is not genuine. The setup of the parable is he's justified. And it's sort of like the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. It's picking characters that are at polar opposite ends of Jewish society to make a point. And Yeshua doesn't bring up the little quibble that I just brought up. He sets up this guy who doesn't get invited to many cocktail parties among the Jews because he is regarded as someone working for the Romans and we don't like him. Probably a cheat and all that kind of stuff. Certainly he'd take way more taxes from me than I think I owe. What tax collector doesn't? So what he's doing is setting up people on opposite ends of the social scale. And he's saying, this one God isn't listening to, that one, because of his sincere repentance and humility, God does listen to. That's the point of the parable. So my little quibble that I just brought up isn't part of the parable. And you know, your desire to give him the benefit of the doubt is probably in line with what Yeshua intended. But the thing that crosses my mind is, hmm, is this guy putting on an act? And, of course, obviously in the parable, he's not. Do with that whatever seems good to you. But the point of the exercise here is this is the outside of the chiasm, where the first part of the chiasm involving the Lord's Prayer talks about what you should be asking for in prayer. And this last part of the chiasm, the Pharisee and the tax collector, talks about how you should approach God. And this, by the way, is not contrary to chutzpah. Moses doesn't say, God, you got to forgive these people because I'm such a hot rock and I'm the one who's asking. That's not what he says. What he says is, God, you need to forgive these people because your reputation is on the line. So Moses is not exalting himself when he is displaying chutzpah before God. What he's doing is he's using God's own character in his petition and saying, your character demands you do this. And God does. Same thing with Abraham in Sodom. Abraham does not say, hey, you've chosen me. I'm the father of nations. I'm asking you. You got to do this, God, because it's me asking you. Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham instead says, wait a minute. Are you perhaps going to destroy the righteous with the unrighteous? The judge of the whole world can't do that. See the difference? So next time, 
what we'll do is signs of the present and future kingdom. And the break point, if you'll notice in the chiasm behind us, is eschatology. So you have eschatology at the beginning, eschatology at the end, and eschatology in the middle. So on one side we have future stuff, i.e., when I return, am I going to find faith? And similarly, what are the signs of his coming going to be? And on the upper side, what we have is what are the signs of the current kingdom? And sort of parenthesis, what should be happening now as we live? Because we are still in the current kingdom.